Welcome to Building the Oracle, a podcast about two dudes building a publishing house and film studio from the ground up with nothing more than some pocket lint and a flux capacitor. I'm your host, Jay Swanson. And I'm Richard Bilkey. And today's guests are three of my oldest sci-fi writing buddies who I caught up with in Novi, Michigan, back when we were still allowed to travel the world. Fittingly, we discussed building them. We're almost through our first season of Building the Oracle, and by now, you've probably come to realize that Richard and I aren't just building a publishing house, but working through and building up the world in which I'm writing as well. It's a lot to keep straight over the course of some 50 books. Yeah, and honestly, actually, the world building is one of the most fun parts of our jobs. Um, so much so that we could easily spend months and months happily deep diving into all the little details of your universe without writing anything new in your books themselves, which I guess is a classic definition of world builder syndrome, um, which of course we don't want to fall down into. Uh, at the same time, with an epic story arc playing out in the background of 50 different books, uh, there's a lot of backstory that we really need to get uh, locked down now so that we don't paint ourselves into corners and force ourselves to retcon ourselves out of trouble. We need to find a balance and we need to spend our world building time efficiently and effectively. So who better to talk to to get some tips from than some hardened world building veterans. So in today's episode, we're going to dive into the research and world building processes of Mike Underwood, Adam Rakunis and Patrick Tomlinson. Welcome to Building the Oracle. I'm your host, Jay Swanson, and today I'm lucky to be joined by three of the handsomest faces in science fiction, Mike Underwood, Adam Rakunis, and Patrick Tomlinson. Hi, gentlemen. Hello. Hi. Hello. Mike is the author of the forthcoming space opera, Annihilation, Annihilation Aria, available wherever books are sold. Annihilation Aria. No. What is Annihilation? <laughs> Mike is a maven and a master of meta whose meticulous marketing management made millions for mid-sized monolith, Angry Robot. Oh, my uh, God. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Uh, I need a mask that has an M on it. <laughs> we'll be handing those out afterwards. You can check it out on Twitter. Adam's Windswept series was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award and combines mystery and action with labor politics through rum distilleries on the edge of space. Adam's articulate adventures are astronomical yet accessible across an abundance of arenas and are absolutely essential reading. Glad to have you on, Adam. I am so scared what you're going to say for Pat, but thank you, Jay. <laughs> I, I actually was I, I'm unfortunately a little bit, I think, too tame for Pat, but Pat's, <laughs> Pat's book, Starship Repo, is a, definitely not about pirates. They're legitimate business people, and you'll have to buy a copy just to find out how legit they are. Pat's prodigious production of page turners preceded his popular presence on Twitter, particularly parchment profiling people populating planets of no proximity to our own. Thanks for joining us, Pat. You're welcome. I'm a little bit jet lagged and I wrote that on, <laughs> well on total jet lag brain. Thank you very well much. Done. Why so, did you do that to yourself? So the rule is or that us. we can only speak if we include words that start with the letter M in our sentences. You have to start every sentence with the first letter of your name. We could do it. We could, we are, we do have, we're at a convention right now. We have some alcohol in front of us. We could do a game where you have to progress through the alphabet. Whoever started the last sentence. You have to move on, but I, I think um, that might be a little bit too much. Do you I, have another topic I can't, we could do? Zach, this Zach isn't here, but I know he's he's shaking his head somewhere. Zach is Zach our says, producer is not that. enjoying what we're doing to him right now on any level. You guys all knew each other before you knew me. We can just jump into the non-alliterated series here, uh, possibly. And we're at, that's true. I just was I was curious what the story. I know you two are, are are Twitter besties, or I don't know what the actual title of your bromance is. Oh, anymore. it's Twitter besties. That's Twitter what I thought. Besties, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's I'm pointing at Adam and Pat right now. How did you all, how did you all meet? And we all we all have deep manly voices, so this could be difficult to track with. I'm sorry. Uh, we met at pretty sure it was Emerald City. 
No, it was Spokane. No, it was Spokane. It was Did you meet in Spokane? We met in the Spokane Worldcon. Yep. Pat's, uh, my book had just, my book was in paper. I remember you were outraged because your book was not yet in paper, but we still That's sat correct. at the booth and, uh, you know, grabbed, grabbed passersby. Hey, want to read some books? Hey, want to read some, actually, hey, want to buy some books? Yeah, Spokane, Washington, which is the first uh, Worldcon that I had attended, that was also a natural disaster area declared by FEMA. That was <laughs> yeah. that was a fun year. Good times. Post-apocalypticon. Oh, my yeah, God. Saturday afternoon, I went and I had to go and basically sit down in a big comfy chair for like an hour solid because I had just run myself too ragged and there was smoke in the exhibit hall. Spokane, there was a, a, a series of forest fires in the area at the time. And the other connection point to make is that these three yokels all either worked or published through Angry Robot. And I didn't realize that you guys met at that point because that's mm-hmm. when I also met you. Right. So you guys only actually know each other a couple hours longer than I know you. Probably, yeah. About that. That's yeah. kind of crazy. Uh, and I actually met, because it all started with Mike, because I was uh, hanging out at the Reddit table and the Redditors, shout out to Reddit Fantasy, were super lovely and nice and we're like you know who you need to meet mike underwood he's amazing and they were basically like he's over there he'll connect you and make friends and you know what happened exactly that yes well and i was impressed like right away when i saw like your promo stuff for nanton and that's when you had the art uh nimitz art up in the in the artist alley and Nimit Malavia's art for Into the nanton is just it's stunning and it it does this thing that i love which is like hyper saturated color um, and so that caught my eye right away. And, you know, I, I love meeting people and hearing what people are doing with their, with their work. And you're, you were doing something so very distinct at the time in terms of really strong audio focus and the real time blog. Um, and, you know, just come and hang out with people and the booths that I ran for Angry Robot, we tended to kind of just become a party atmosphere. Um, so it was fun to hang out. Sometimes maybe a little too much so when we had 12 people packed oh, in yeah. like, a six-by-six six booth. I absolutely had to be the grown-up, uh, <laughs> which was not as much fun, but sometimes funny. Well, you know, Pat had stopped sneaking fifths into the booth and hiding them. Sneaking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys all have very different backgrounds as well. And we, Mike and I were talking in a previous episode a little bit about his publishing background, which you can go jump into. Uh, but you guys, you're, you're a stand-up comic. And you're becoming a paralegal. Yes, a pair of legals. A pair of legals. Oh, no, no, you had your one play, dude. You're not allowed no, to No, I, I got at least two because it's a joke about pairs. Oh, God. This All is right. why they're so much fun to follow on Twitter if you're not following them already. Where, tell us a little bit about, because especially, Pat, I know you you have, there are lulls to be had in all of your books, but they're not all written as comedies. Yeah, actually, my, my debut is called The Ark. It was a murder mystery set on a 10-mile-long generation ship thing. Um, and I wrote it to be like a serious, like noir sort of, uh, you know, murder mystery thriller kind of deal. And what came back instead was the, the best, the most feedback I got was like, wow, this book's really funny. And I'm like, it, what is it? I didn't mean for it to be okay. Yeah, I think like it's hard to not bring your own sense of humor to something unless you're like really aggressively trying to, to tamp it down. Um, and you know, I got to work on the arc and a couple of other books of Pat's and like that stood out to me, but we were still really focusing on the, the thriller aspect. And then, then it was a question of like, Oh, okay, well like there's this other dimension to, to Patrick because whenever you debut people's expectations are kind of set by what that book is mm. and no debut novel is, in my experience is ever like really a full representation of the author. So it's funny to see the, the expectations and the images that are formed about people based on what they start with. 
what expectations do people have you are are you do they ever, does everyone think that you actually distill your own rum adam but you would not believe how many people go and say hey i've just found this new distillery and this rum is really good you should go and try it and i you know i he I'm, just wants to eat tacos in peace i'm really more of a beer alone. guy that's the problem <laughs> right and and an indian food from the gas station across the street guy yes Everyone, if you come to Novi, Michigan, make sure you visit Dava Kitchen there, across the highway of deaths. It is totally a highway weird. of death. Where so this convention, one of the funniest things about this convention is that there is, I, it's not just that there's food, hot food in the gas station. There's an entire Indian restaurant inside of the gas station. And it's across really the authentic. It's, and it's very really good. good. So good. Very spicy. And Adam's a little bit upset because it's going to be closed tonight. Apparently, and there's well, uh, there's yeah. a four lane highway between us and it, and there is no crosswalk. So you pretty much have to risk your life to cross the highway of death to yeah, get fact, to the delicious I, Indian food, and then bring it back to the cons. So. I had to keep Jay from getting crushed to death the other night, the right. first night we were here, because Jay thought like, oh well, obviously people stop for pedestrians everywhere. Like you, you <laughs> not on this continent. <laughs> this is not Paris, my friend. You take your life in your hand, in your hands. I really appreciated that. Yeah, my mom appreciates it too. She would have been very upset if I. I've gotten smooshed on my first day here. You're welcome, Jay's mom. I just like to point out again, guys. You've you've already uh, before we we're talking. You've already mentioned burritos, which is very cool for a guy in Paris. But then mentioning Indian food as well. Um, the two things that also there's this incredible you know. Ethiopian place not far from here. <laughs> we just have to uh, to take the um, uh, take the tunnel across and get some curry in London, right? Oh man, yeah, that, that yeah, it's just yeah. Jaunt. it's uh, just a jaunt, a quick jaunt. I did bring these guys pastries all the way from Paris, but we're getting way off here. I was gonna say one of the focuses that we're gonna do in here, besides we're gonna have fun. That's fine. Having fun is good. It's hard not to have fun when we're together. But I wanted to kind of get into your guys' uh, world building and research because there's there's a I jokingly talk about you making your own rum, but I imagine that you had to have done a fair amount of research into the actual process of rum making and distilling. I did. And you know, some, some of that was just getting on Wikipedia, which is, you know, it's awesome for hand waving if you really needed a pinch. Yeah. Uh, but the, the fun thing about research for anything is that you can go down all sorts of rabbit holes and sometimes those rabbit holes will help go and bring up cool problems for your book that you could also help solve or you, you know, mm. your characters can solve those problems. Um, Give us an example. Well, the biggest one is the. It's funny. What one of the big bads in Windswept is actually a plant disease because, in in the world of the book, uh, we're a couple hundred years in the future. We don't. Uh, it's a, it's a transstellar economy that's all powered by genetically modified sugarcane. That's the hydrocarbon that everyone uses. So, I thought, well, I should go and look and see. I should go and learn how does how is sugarcane cultivated? How is it processed? How is it what do you do with all the stuff afterwards? And so all those little bits helped. Um, Did the rum come? No, the after rum kind of came as an. It's funny. The rum was an afterthought for the very first uh, the first draft. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it wasn't till I I went to a writing workshop and uh, Brad Bullu and oh boy, I'm really tired. I cannot think of Bill Shun. I'm sorry, Bill. It's been a long day. Right. He just wants Indian right. uh, food, Bill. It's not Bill your fault. Bill and Brad read it and. Uh, both talked about it, and they said, like, you have this, you know, you've gone and set up this thing of of the sugar cane and, and rum and all this stuff like that. You should play that up. Have that be more of a thing. So being able to go and, and find out not only how sugar cane is made, not only the, all the byproducts, but all the stuff that can affect it, including this disease called black stripe, which is a real thing. I just, you know, science fictioned it up and made it scarier for, for the sake of the book. Gave it teeth. Yeah. 
Pat, literally teeth. It has teeth. Like, it, it bites you if you. Yeah. It's really. It makes sugar cane's already kind of scary enough as it is, but you give it teeth. And Pat, you actually. I remember one of the things in uh, that I thought was super cool in your process was you were drawing generation ships. Like you were doing your own designs for for this murder mystery, right? Like I thought it was. I thought it was cool. And one of the things that you did that I wasn't. I don't think I'd ever heard of before. I talked to you, which is probably ups your nerd cred and downs mine. Is the the propulsion system of kicking nukes out the back of a ship and then detonating those to propel yourself oh, forward? Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, I I put a lot of thought into the ship because I wanted to, basically the the generation ship that they use is built or they start building it like a hundred years hence from now right um so it's not that far in the future we're not screwing around with alcubierre drive warp drive yet you know it's and so i'm like okay this has to, if this is going to work it has to be something that we could conceivably build right now and like you know a shovel ready project for space um and the only thing that we have at the moment is something called the Orion Drive, which is literally a ship that's like a giant space-going pogo stick that shits nuclear bombs and blows them up to, to shove itself forward. And this is an idea that's been around since the 50s. They actually did a test. There's a clip on YouTube showing a test vehicle for this uh, using conventional explosives instead of nukes, but it goes up. Drops a little bomb, bomb blows up, pushes itself up more, oh my gosh. pushes itself up more, and it does this like three or four times, uh, just as a proof of concept. And this was being done in, in the late fifties and early sixties. Right. Then the nuclear test ban treaty came along, and everyone's like, "Hey, maybe we shouldn't be detonating <laughs> hundreds of nukes in the atmosphere." <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there's consequences to that. But yeah, so I wanted to ha before I started, I, mean, I had the the plot fleshed out, but before I really started to sit down and write the book i wanted to have because the the entire book takes place on the ship right i mean it, the as far as world building the ship is the world yeah um so i wanted to have that laid out so i knew which where all the sections of the ship were how they worked what their function was um i imagine i remember the fish tanks and the the meal they had with like the fish that they were growing on board yeah yeah that was cool too um yeah, i'll get to that in just a second but yeah i like and I've, I've done that ever since. Like, every time I sit down to write a book, if there's a spaceship in it, I draw it out. If there's a city in it, I, I map it out to some degree because it helps to anchor me in the world so that and give me directions so that it's easier to visualize while I'm writing the thing. Does that ever, in doing that, because I know for me, when I've sat down and actually mapped it out and realized, wow, this makes, what I was trying to do makes no sense. Like, are there any moments where you're like, oh, I actually need to change. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. The story. Um, the the story had to be applied to the environment. Then, and in this case, it's a ten mile long starship with, um, you know, two giant counter rotating, uh, you know, uh, habitat modules, and they're they're counter rotating because you need to cancel out the gyroscopic effects while you move through space of of them spinning, and they're spinning because they're creating artificial gravity on the inside of them, um, so that because human bodies turns out really don't handle zero G very well for long periods of time. And they're going to be out in space that, yeah. for a couple hundred years. But yeah, there was a speaking of like world building and falling down rabbit holes. When I was researching the ship and how big it would have to be to sustain X number of people, like how, how many acres 
of farmland do you need to grow enough food to sustain one person and then take that and multiply it by 50,000? Uh, how much oxygen does one person use in a day? And now you're going to have to multiply that by 50,000 and have enough trees or processors to, you know, to produce that volume of oxygen. Same with water, same with, same with everything, you know, because you're building not just a ship, but a self-contained world. So once I had the basic outlines of those answers, I went and started looking at other things uh, like hydroponics, uh, aeroponics. And it turns out there was a hydroponic place right in Milwaukee. Um, and it was, it was called uh, Sweetwater or Sweet Bay Organics, something like that. It's been like five years. I don't remember exactly. No, it is totally not a weed shop. Um, what they were doing was they were growing, they were hydroponically growing organic lettuce and, uh, and select types of vegetables. And then at the same time, growing uh, freshwater fish like uh, perch and bluegill. And when I, in the first drafts of the, or the, the first pass through of writing the outline, my assumption was everyone is going to be vegan. There was going to be no meat, no animals of any kind on the ship except the people themselves because meat is so, so energy intensive to create that it just wouldn't make sense at all. But then going to this, this facility, and they've got just racks and racks and racks of these, uh, these water troughs where they're growing the, the lettuce and the, and the various leafy greens and stuff. But then that cleaned out water the cycles through into these tanks where they're also growing perch or, and bluegill. And the fish would, and would be grateful for the oxygenated clean water, and then they would immediately poop in it. And then that dirty water would be, that has been deoxygenated would be sent to the plants, which really loved the nitrogen and the other nutrients in the fish poop and it became this really and then would clean it you know would clean it out through the through the process of uptake of, of nutrients from the water and it was this perfect little cycle and you so ne- so now the people on the ship enjoyed you know freshwater fish sushi and they had they had friday night fish fries it, it, this the fish was still very expensive but it was there and that actually helped overcome a lot of the problems that you have when you have whole big populations that have no access to meat whatsoever. Because I'm not saying vegan diets are unhealthy. They aren't, but they are also very finicky. It's, it's difficult to do right, and it's a lot easier to be able to just introduce at least some animal protein into the diet to balance things out. It's a complicated environment to survive in to begin with. Mike's also got, with his series, we talked about, you've all written a lot. Mike's, in developing worlds, you actually have, like, you guys have written across genres, and but Mike actually wrote specifically about characters crossing genres. How do you go about setting up the rules in a world where anything can happen? Where you could literally jump on a rocket ship and land in a Western. Right, so the... The through the biggest through line was the people, where you know, like a, a monster of the week kind of TV show or something like Sliders or Star Trek, um, the characters are the ones that are consistent, and then there's the guest stars in every world. And the the things I was most focusing on were the characters and their experience of these different narratives, and what I wanted to say about how stories are told in each genre and why we tell them that way. You know, the the kind of the impact um, and the way that um, American kind of national identity is expressed and interrogated through the Western and who is it, who is allowed to use lethal force? How is it used? How is space, uh, um, how is space like taken and held through violence? Uh, and I, I didn't really focus on uh, the interactions of Europeans with native nations 
uh, because it's a terrible, horrendous history where Europeans have a massive debt of uh, violence and injustice. And I didn't feel like I wanted to focus on that part, but it's really hard to tell a Western story and not touch on that at all. So I tried to kind of constrain and zoom into a subsection, but what I focused on there was the degree to which the cowboys were mostly um, black and brown. It was uh, freed slaves, children of freed slaves, free African-Americans. It was people from the indigenous nations, you know, it's the, the Mexica, uh, the Quechua, and a lot of other people who were already in that area and were had their own ways of living and dealing with and being on the land. So the, the kind of John Wayne vision of the white cowboy was really an exception rather than the rule. So one of the things that I did with the Western episode of Genrenauts was to spotlight a uh, Latina cowboy character as a gesture toward the reality versus the perception. And, uh, you know, that kind of spoke to the tension between what we think of in genres and how genres shape our view of w the way things were, like a Western shape our genre of how the West was versus the actual history. And the, uh, indicating the responsibility of storytellers in being the ones that are filling in details for, for people. Because a lot of people have seen Westerns, but they haven't necessarily studied the Old West. And so that tension and that level of world building was one of the ones that I focused on the most because it's where I felt like I could, uh, had something to say and where I could operate in a way that's going to be interesting to the story without being too didactic. What were some of the biggest pain points you guys have hit along the way in your publishing career? Because it's not all glitz and glam. You're all devilishly handsome. You have people throwing themselves at you left and right and asking for signatures and buying you beers. And I know that it's really difficult to get you just in a room for a bit because you could be down on the con floor right now just basking in the praise of your fans. But what are some of the realities that come with this whole writing thing? And like, it's not just, it's not just challenges, obviously with the world building, which we'll dive into more, especially in the second half of the show, but like personally, what, how are you guys doing and, and what's the, hard about the this? waiting? It's, all, <laughs> it's just all, but publishing is slow. Oh my God. It's, I, I had, I had no real idea. And then in some ways I was kind of spoiled because my first three books were published through angry robot and they were, uh, you know, they were at the time, very, they're like a six month publishing. Company. Yeah, they were, they were very, they were, they were, they were smaller. They were, they were aggressive. They were nimble. Um, they were just starting to get some, uh, some, you know, awards recognition from, from some of the books like, uh, Ramez Nam's, uh, Nexus trilogy. Right. You know, it got Lauren Bucas's stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. That was, you know, they were starting to. Uh, really rack up some some recognition that way, uh, not not due to anything Adam did because he just kept losing all the awards he was <laughs> he was nominated for. Thanks, but, uh, <laughs> but um, you can see what the foundations of the bromance are built on. <laughs> but the yeah the the waiting it was driving me it was just drove me crazy and like you know you'd you'd send something in and they'd be like all right well you know we'll get to read this and we'll get back to you in three months and I'm like three freaking months what the hell am i supposed to do in the meantime and it turns out that was lightning fast compared to the rest of the industry and since then i've been i've been signed on with tour and i've got two books out with them and a third one coming uh at the in october this year and you know their publication schedule is much more in line with the expectations of of the big five out of new york and that's like a year i mean that's that's a the, the turnaround time is and the and the lead time is way longer 
than even the first few books that I put out through Angry Robot, which I already thought were too long. I just had no idea how good I had it back then. But um, so th- that part and the fact that you have to get used to the idea that uh, you, you, you're going to be waiting, but you also can't wait. And so as soon as you've turned in that, that most recent book, um, you, and you, you can't wait until it gets published and see how it does. Like you have to be starting on the next thing because no matter what you're writing right now, that is what is going to be paying the mortgage two years from now. Or, or perhaps longer in some cases. So, like the the money that I'm having coming in right now uh, from from Tor on these most recent books is on work that I finished more than a year ago. Training your brain to realize that's like, oh, I've got money coming in, but if I stop working right now, a year from now there won't be any money. Um, and when you're used to working, you know, just like, hey, I worked this week, I get paid next week for the work I just did. And, you know, like, that's, that's a big, uh, that's a big thing you really have to acclimatize yourself to. I think it's just competing for attention with all the other stuff that's available for people who want to get their nerd fix back, you know, I think when we were all kids, it's cable was new and expensive. There were, you know, you had three networks, and maybe a couple of local stations that would go and play, you know, bad science fiction movies from the 50s or reruns of Star Trek. Uh, and now, like, I think, like, the times we've gone to Emerald City Comic Con, I know the big thing I always complain about is, how can we compete against Funko Pops? <laughs> what, do, what do we do when nerds, I don't want books? What are books? I want to go and get this brand new limited edition White Walker that also looks like George R. R. Martin Funko Pop, which is probably a thing for all I know. I, I think you just described a thing that it will exist if it doesn't already. I guess so. They're probably cheering it out right now. It, it's Adam has an irrational hatred of Funko Pops, everyone. <laughs> just just so we're clear on it's this. It's important to note that we were literally on the other side of a, <laughs> a, a very, very yeah. narrow wall from Funko Pop for, I think, at least two Emerald City Cons? Three, yes. three years, I think. Just watching them just pump those Funko Pops out. I have no idea. Oh, they're, they're, you know they're these little... No, 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 no. Let, let him enjoy the bliss of not knowing. Google it. <laughs> Richard, after this is over. <laughs> it's an American American culture reference that I... I guess I it's probably good that it hasn't us. gotten over to Europe yet. It's, it's Oh, it will, because they've, they've built so many of them that they're eventually just going to float across the <laughs> Atlantic <laughs> that, you and know, create that, 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 that that a land, a land yeah. bridge like the Bering Strait. Right. We'll just be able to walk across the Funko Pops. We're going to have the great, the great Pacific Garbage Gyre, and then we're going to have the Atlantic Funko Pop Gyre. <laughs> so you could walk. Um. And on the one hand, I think it, it is amazing. That, I think, Jay, you and I talked about this, how the fact that you know, nerd stuff is no longer this kind of seedy, hidden secret oh, knowledge. No, we completely won the culture right. wars. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yesterday, I went to the gas station Indian place, and I'm walking around. There are the Rise of Skywalker Chex Mix bags with Daisy Ridley's picture as Ray. I mean, you, <laughs> back when we were kids, it was a big deal to go and have... Burger King make the collectible cups for Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back. That stuff is everywhere. Yeah, it is. It I mean, and completely ubiquitous. It's yeah. completely ubiquitous. And the problem is, people. I think you know, people want to go and have the stuff associated with the pop culture and the nerd, the nerd stories, without realizing that. Well, you know, a lot of them come from short fiction, come they, and novels, and yeah, independent comics. Not not everything is a Marvel DC 
Disney-owned property. Yet. But yet. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sure as soon as we're done with this podcast, we're going to be getting... We'll, this, this right, is we'll be getting our offers from Disney. I mean, he, he, wants, he wants licenses. But yeah, just, just cutting through all yeah. of just that... I don't want to call it noise, but it certainly seems like there's a whole lot of signal out there. Yeah. Well, it does amount... At some point, it, when you're trying to break through it, it does definitely amount to noise. Speaking of building worlds, one of the things that's built my world into the delightful existence that it has become against all odds has been Patreon. And my patrons, the people that make this possible and that have made our continuing efforts to create stuff for you to listen to, watch on YouTube, all of it possible in the midst of the chaos that is our current world. Thank you so much to our existing patrons. Whether you're a patron of me, the podcast, or both, we really appreciate having you here. And if you're considering becoming a patron, we would greatly appreciate it because it makes all the difference in the world. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash dreadgods. That's patreon.com slash dreadgods to support these ridiculous activities of ours today. Well, it's been fun listening to you guys just uh, get buddy-buddy over there and catch up. Um, but no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm sitting here alone in my little... The kids are asleep. It's all good. Um, but now this is sort of my section. So, so guys, what we're doing with this podcast really is um, it's really just a scam to get free consulting out of you guys. I know you probably didn't need that. You can just joke and just Is this multi-level drinks, marketing? Are I we going to sell drinks. Amway next? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the second half, I really, yeah, the second half of the episode is really mine. I'm the, I'm the, the business guy here who's going to try and wrangle some advice out of you. And as a regular listener to the podcast will know, um, Jay and I are building a publishing house around the stories in his The Oracle of Dread Gods universe. And Jay's already written nine books in this universe. And of course, we plan on reworking and releasing, re-releasing all of those, um, plus a lot more books that he's got, he's got planned um, over multiple series across a very sweeping timeline. Um, but before we can do that one of the things we one of the reasons we've we sort of unpublished everything is because we we need to sit down and really tighten up the world building um so we've been sitting down over a lot of pizzas uh we've had a lot of artisanal organic french colas and uh and we're we're, we're working on the world building and, and taking it back to you know jay's got a lot of the broad uh, the broad brush strokes of the universe written down he's got a lot of the major timelines and characters in place but you know, there's still a lot of gaps to fill with the the magic system that we need to be ironed out, and and you know, gaps in the timelines and things like that. Now, we're also very conscious that we don't want to get caught up in the world building disease. We don't want to um, spend so much time on this that we don't actually get to the part of, of releasing these books and getting an income coming in. Um, but with such an ambitious sort of project that Jay's got, we don't want to paint ourselves into a corner and create continuity errors before we, you know, by, by trying to publish stuff too quickly. So there's this balancing act we've got. We, we, we want to do the world building, but we, uh, we also need to get on, um, get these books out there. So obviously we'd like to get some tips from you guys um, for, you know, how you do your effective world building. So I guess the first question, if, if you were to go about setting up a, a completely new universe that you're going to spend a lot of time in, um, so not just one book, but a, you know, a full series of that, where do you start with that world? Well, that's, that's not a, that's Sorry, not a I, big I question at all. No. To, go start, uh, to go first. Yeah. Let's see. I mean, you, you've, got, you've got a huge base of nine books already, so I would assume that you've got a fairly fleshed out world already in the, in the waiting there. Um, 
I think that it's important to, at some point, you ha- you have to get to a point where you're not just tacking on for the sake of of doing it. Uh, the The world needs to expand in a way that is commiserate with the size of the story, because I th- see a lot of things get trapped in the. They, they they fall into a trap of like just adding more locations and adding more cultures and adding more whatever because they think okay now we need we're in a new book we have to go explore somewhere else it's like and when they haven't really fully explored what they've already built um you know kind of kind of looking at you uh, star wars the most recent trilogy it's like oh no we need a desert planet how about jakku it's like what the fuck was wrong with tatooine i mean seriously we didn't need to we could, you could have had the, like the big climactic battle over tatooine and crashed a bunch of star destroyers on it that would have made a heck of a lot more anyway um <laughs> you know so just just you probably have an awful lot to work with there already and if you want to make it bigger make sure that you're justifying making it bigger with actual storyline. It's not about it being bigger at this point. The scale is is definitely pretty massive. It's more about like where do you what are the structures that you set in place that you can then fill, right? So like you the danger is that you you start asking lots of questions. That's the fun thing you were, like you were talking about with the rabbit holes of world building Adam is that you start researching one thing, you're like, ooh, you get really curious and you start falling down. And eventually you're like defining weather patterns in a continent that never existed just for because you're like, was it sunny that day or wasn't it? So what are the boundaries that you set to not, especially when the, the scale is massive, you only really want to make to focus in and build portions of that. So Jay, I'm going to tell you to play some role-playing games. Yes, sir. And what I mean by that is... Will you be my DM? uh, Well, I'm happy to to, to work with you on it. So this is a game I've not played, but I've heard incredibly good things about and uh, is used really widely by people in the kind of the story games world. And that's a role-playing game called Microscope by Ben Robbins. And it's a fractal role-playing game of epic histories. And I'm in, I'm intrigued. Rather than D and D, where it's you know you each player has one specific character, and you're really within like kind of an epic fantasy time time frame, where it's you know one group and maybe over years, or maybe even decades. Microscope is a game that works in decades and centuries or millennia, and uh, it gives you some interesting tools for moving across a timeline. And I think the thing that may be useful because you've already got some material is to using this tool and maybe some others reflect on what what is that universe about? Someone who has read all of these books or, you know, in 20 years, the academic who is writing about the Oracle of the Dread Gods, you know, what themes do they say are central to that setting? And then... If you identify something of a thematic backbone, then it's a question of how is this theme manifested in each time frame? You know, is it taking a different angle? Is it using a different test case? Is it providing a different counterpoint to the synthesis that came before? And something like Microscope or some of these other um, setting, building-oriented role-playing games may give you some tools to take what you already have, reflect on it, and, and analyze it a little bit. Because for me... The, the tools and the tips that I've picked up playing tabletop role-playing games have been really powerful for me from kind of uh, the structure tools of fronts from Apocalypse World or the fail-forward um, systems in uh, Powered by the Apocalypse or Force in the Dark where you can have your protagonist be very um, 
successful or very competent, but it's not that they suck at the thing that they're doing. It's that uh, additional complications emerge and you can have, um, there's a great bit of advice from Mary Robin at Cole where she says, take your character, have them make the smartest, most well-informed decision uh, to respond to a crisis and then explain why it fails. Mm. Not that they're bad, but that something else goes wrong. And um, when you're dealing with that big of a scale, I think giving yourself some limits or some tools that will let you reevaluate what you already have could be really powerful. Yeah, I think um, the thing I take away from that as well, you, you mentioned having the, the key scenes. And I think part of the, the, the major problem we're facing is, well, not the problem we're facing, but the thing we're trying to work through is he, he does have a big world out there. It, it's how do we, it's almost like what the publishing schedule should be like. How do we reveal this world um, in sequence, you know, what story should we tell first and what information should we, should we put out there um, so, that we, so that as we build this world for the reader, they, um, the, it doesn't feel like uh, a world that's being created ad hoc. We're not, you know, uh, adding things on, like you say, with Star Wars, just adding new things in there, but this world is being revealed um, in, a, in a way that just, it just keeps expanding and, and calling back to itself in a, in a, in a way that's going to be most satisfying to the Having reader. new things or continually using the same planet destroying technology. <laughs> Ooh, the big reveal is we have another planet <laughs> yeah, killer. Create right? oh, the Death Star over and over again. Not a Death yeah. Star, a Death planet. Galaxy. <laughs> Thousands of Death Ships, Star Ships. So, <laughs> death Bees. This yeah. Buried in the sand. Anyway. <laughs> so you, you mentioned you mentioned tools there as well and i know that those tools you were thinking in terms of uh you know t- writing tools in, in you know mary robert canal's idea of, of um you know how to, how to write yourself into a scene or, or do that but are there any other tools you're using in terms of actually tracking the world building so what do you guys use uh you've mentioned already that you draw you illustrate you make maps things like that are there any other tools you do uh that you use to keep track of your worlds and to um uh, I'm thinking, for example, that it's not just in the um, it's not just for us to, to refer back to, but it might be something that could become a, a base for fans um, down the track as well. So, uh, what what have you guys found out there that that's that's great for that external tools that you can use? Writing Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> yep. But seriously, <laughs> doing there, things that's... like that to not only you know keep track of events and your chronology and all that, but finding out how stuff is related to each other uh finding how you're you know we're talking about world building i, I know this we're talking about world building a lot but it, it's the your character is going to be informed or will be informed by the world that they're in and so you want to make sure that what, what's going to keep people more interested is yeah we can go and have all the interesting environments and cultures and magic systems and stuff like that how do people deal with it how do they use it how do they subvert it and how do they relate to each other? Those are, those are also important world-building tools. Also, how does everyone eat? I think people need to go talk about... Actually, I'm really glad, Pat, that you brought up the hydroponics and the perch and stuff like that because that's a, an important setting thing, but it's also something that helps feed 
the story and you know, sorry. Oh, and the and it's the it's dinner local. time, so I can't really think straight about that. But it, it you know, <laughs> and, and and it informs the economy too. Right. It's like you yeah. know, how is how, what does trade look like here, and what are the what are the routes? Because like what what are the most rare resources you have? What, yeah. What are the, the what are the resources people are going to be fighting over? What are the resources people are going to be trading the most? Um, you know, because war is, for the most part, informed not by politics but by supply and demand and and. What resources go where? Yeah, yeah. Resources um, over long enough time scales, at the very least, and the way different cultures interact with each other is based on is based on those needs as well. You know, the 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 east and the west were never actually separate for any real length of time. I mean, they traded over the Silk Road and the Spice Roads for thousands of years. I mean, they may not have been able to talk to each other real well, but they sure as hell exchanged resources. Yeah, and like you already picked up onto the the culture vein, which follows directly from food, because food is such a manifestation and an expression of culture. It's an expression of where is there excess, where is there scarcity? Um, how do we come together? Who gets to come together and who doesn't? Um, you know, all of the rituals around how the person who cooks is appreciated, how you talk about food, what you do and don't talk about during food. Um, what do you eat? What do you not eat? Who gets to eat what and why? Yeah, like sumptuary laws are really powerful, but I think also um, like food laws, food ways. Like I have a folklore background, and you know. For example, you tonight Mike does not get to eat gas station Indian food. He just I know does not get well, to do and, it, and it's because of an environmental factor, which could be framed as a plot move, where you're constraining the environment by making the the, you know, the weather worse. It's like, okay, if you're keeping your character in this hotel, what does that For let four you days <laughs> until they start eating <laughs> each I'm other. I'm never going to get back to Paris. You live here now, Jay. I'm oh, sorry. man. Welcome you've back to You've America. always lived in the Novi shirt. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> I've never left. I should have saved one of those pan au chocolat for myself. Welcome back, Mr. Swanson. picture of you always down the here. lobby from 1917 <laughs> where you're just smiling in a suit. Sorry, that was a really obscure Groundhog Day reference that I was just humming, but... Thank you to the three listeners who are following us all the way here. You are loved. You are appreciated. Deeply. No, that's that's really good. I think food, th those are elements, too, that it's like it. you can... I guess part of the fear, though, is, and I won't well, name Almost names. every story overlooks food and clothing. Yeah. That's the other weird thing. Clothing like, is another great they, one. They, a lot of places, or a lot of books and, and series, like, it's like, oh, okay, well, they're in standard medieval peasant clothing. It's like... Okay, there, there. A, a, there was no such thing. Yeah, um, everyone's wearing burlap sacks <laughs> covered in mud. That's that sounds like my local Ren Fair. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like, and like and clothing is is and cloths or or and jewelry. I mean, these are things that are 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 the, also the basis of economies. You know, just as just as much as food or or religion is. Like these are things that people trade in and fight over. Yeah. That they used to identify themselves. Yeah, or you wear your wealth. Yeah, exactly. Signaling to other people who you are, where you are in society. For example, right now, is Jay, Jay is wearing a purple T-shirt, which a few hundred years ago would have been a sign of royalty. Now it's just a sign of near poverty. <laughs> <laughs> it's got Gustav on it, so it's endearing. <laughs> yeah, but that's, I think that those are the, that's what's fun about it and fascinating about it, is diving deep and asking questions and learning and learning about our own worlds and referencing that into the worlds that we create. And I think that for us, what we're trying to figure out is, is, you know, 
a combination of what's fun and interesting because some of it can just be fun. There are levels of exposition and levels of world revealing that can be really entertaining on its own just because you, you're having fun exploring a world. But then there's also just depths of it. I, mean, I have a particular author in, in mind that I won't name, but like who goes so far into food they in particular. They are in this room. They are not actually even, I don't think in this building, thankfully, <laughs> but they, they, like I remember, I loved their books, but they would go for pages about a meal. And it and it while it oh, was I, I know I know one person that does that right and they and, are in this hotel right oh now. no okay not who I'm thinking of but the the if especially if they hear this podcast later not who I was thinking of but the, there's that like there comes a point where you're like I don't need to know how it was roasted and over what kind of coal like just tell me that it was sumptuous I don't was know it like anthracite coal I mean was like was, or was it like <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. dirty really sulfur heavy coal yeah like, is this is is the coal actually a flavoring factor in this or is right, it you know yeah. there comes a point where you're like you had a lot of fun with this and it's really cool that you got this deep into it. It, but like we don't need to know for the story and so also what no, Richard, those those details are are best used to um you know to create plot and to create and to create tensions and to create the 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 economic and the military and the political pressures of the world and that's when they become important and you can reveal those details over a campfire scene it's like you know like he was it's like she she brought out and and she was very very sparing with the salt and rubbed it back rubbed what was left back up from her fingers into the the little sack that yeah. she she carries it with because salt is literally worth its weight in gold in this area because nobody's figured out how to flood fields with with uh, ocean water and evaporate it out yet. Yeah, or the the parents kind of quietly arguing about whether they can afford to throw another log on the fire. Um, on a, an especially cold night, you're communicating um, uh, a scarcity. You're communicating, you know, a, a sense of like a supply chain or logistics, or the way that um, you know parents will uh, kind of sacrifice their own um, their own like best interest uh, for the sake of their children. Like, oh well, we're going to make this a special night, you know, and it means we'll we'll be cold later on. You can put a lot of meaning into a small moment if you put the right lens on it. Yeah, and a lot of I think the, a lot of those small details. It's that's it it's yes, it can be the, the big political um, plot driving um, motivations can be derived for that, but it's also just the texture of the story as well. Um, these uh, very lightly done. You can you don't have to go into the full the full thesis you're talking about, but just a few details um, written well, um, and then you can move on, you know, to the dialogue and, and away from that. But it, it you can set a scene very quickly. Um, with just a few clever Well, not even like just that. a scene. You can you can explain an an awful lot about the world that these people are inhabiting in a sentence. Which I think is where the, that's also there's there's a level of mastery in storytelling in that too. And I think that that's the what I'm enjoying is we're diving back because I have like there's world building documents and I like I wrote an entire like hand wrote an entire book on the history of magic in my world, right? Like got really deep into it. I was really enjoying it, having fun, but the even if none of that actually ends up on a page somewhere down the line where you never read any of what I wrote there because it exists and because it informs the way that you tell stories. Hopefully that's the hope is that like, even if you fall down rabbit holes, it just adds a level of depth and you, you use your discipline and your craft to tell the story using those materials without overusing them. Part of the hope. Thanks for coming on the pod guys. Uh, can you really quickly tell our listeners where the heck they can find you on the internet, which Adam is going to be really hard to find on the internet right now because he keeps going on Twitter hiatuses, but you can always buy his book and read his words and carry them around with you and close to your heart at all times. Adam, where do they find you? 
You can find me on my website, Jiro.org. That's G-I-R-O dot O-R-G. I don't know why I have that name. I got it back in the 90s. It made sense at the time, and I'm stuck with it. He thought he was spelling out Euro, and it didn't work. <laughs> this is Patrick here, and you can <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you can you can find and follow Patrick as Tomlinson on Twitter at Stealthy Geek. You can find me on Instagram at PS Tomlinson. Uh, I have a Facebook author page that I never update, so definitely go there. That'll be worth your time. Um, see, then my website is PatrickSTomlinson.com, where you can. Um, read my blog and sign up for uh, my email update list and that sort of thing. You will get the most uh, bang for your buck and mileage out of following me on Twitter, however, because I am hilarious and I uh, really, really love tearing people apart on there. So humble. The humblest. So humble. None more humble. There's little self-assurance in this room. You could follow the WWE or you could just follow Patrick on Twitter. (laughs) And get the conflict you always dreamed of in uh, 280 characters or less now. And Mike? Yes, um, I'm Michael R. Underwood. You can find me at michaelrunderwood.com for updates and stuff. Uh, I have a Patreon that mostly focuses on uh, the business and craft of publishing and sometimes role-playing games, like I mentioned earlier, on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash michaelrunderwood. Uh, I also do consulting and publishing, like career coaching, editorial, um, like submission package, feedback, and that kind of stuff. So folks who are listening may find themselves in need for something like that. Otherwise, you find me uh, at Mike R. Underwood on Twitter. I'm not nearly as hilarious as Patrick, uh, but I do try to make things fun. And fun, indeed, we have. Yeah. <laughs> put, put all that on a shirt? Is that what you just said? Well, sell it. No, oh, okay. I was going to say, geez. Anyways, thanks guys so much for coming on tonight. We had a great time here at Confusion. Thanks, guys. Hope, hopefully, I'll be able to come across for the next one. Oh, that would be wonderful. Thanks yeah, for having me. Great chat with you. Um, well, that was a really fun episode. And I think actually there's a lot of great advice in there for us. First of all, Mike, Adam, and Pat make it very, very clear why spending time on world building is important for their writing. And I think that when most people think of world building in the context of science fiction fantasy, they they really just think about the big stage setting stuff that tells us what kind of book we are in. Um, You know, medieval castles and magicians for epic fantasy, uh, generation starships and AI for space opera, that kind of stuff. But world building is so much more layered and detailed than simply defining the technology or the magic system that that runs the world that we're in. Um, And it's more than just cataloging the species of aliens or the magical creatures that the hero is going to meet along the way. What really struck me uh, when we were talking with Mike and and Adam and Pat was how much of the real world building work wasn't about making the world of a generation starship, for example, different to our own, but rather uh, it was was making that world recognisable and believable to readers today. So we, we talked a lot about paying attention to the micro details of everyday life, such as the food and the clothing and using them to add texture and depth to a scene, you know, to help uh, the, the make the world feel real to the reader. And at the macro end of the scale, Mike, Adam and Pat all looked to the real world, to history, to the economy, to existing systems of technology, to build fantastic worlds that are awe-inspiring but also relatable to a modern audience. And to do world building this way, they couldn't just rely on their own imagination. They had to do research and they... They all did a lot of research. And and what's wonderful about the research is that it not only helps provide the reader with those micro and macro details, it can actually also open up whole new storytelling opportunities for the author. 
Yeah, I really liked how much they... I, I think the example that we were talking about off uh, recording was when Pat... And this has just always stuck with me ever since he told me that story, but the that in going and doing some field research and actually looking at the hydroponics, you know, that he stumbled across the, the fish living in in the water that the plants were growing out of. And that, that stood out to me when I read the book um, and always stuck with me as an example that I kind of wanted to bring back. And I, and I never knew until we sat down in Michigan and he told me, you know, oh, well, that was because I went and saw it in action. Like it wasn't even something he'd been considering in or stumbled across in his research. It was just, he happened to be walking through a place that was doing it and saw that they'd created their own little ecosystem with it. And I think that that's, it's, it's fascinating. And it's on the side, on the one side, because, just walking in and doing your research, uh, you know, could introduce you to all kinds of really interesting avenues you could take. But I think that there's also just something to be said for the, the, the joy of learning as you go. And I know that in doing research that I've been doing recently and just kind of falling down some rabbit holes, half the fun really is just learning. And whether or not you can apply that to anything, you know, that's that's kind of where the world builder syndrome could fall into place if you're just doing it for its own sake in a way but i think that that's also almost the benefit instead of just kind of falling i i don't know if we can separate the two out but in a way instead of isolating yourself within your own little world in your own mind and getting caught in a loop that doesn't necessarily produce anything the one benefit that i find in that discussion and in the way that pat fell into it is that even if he'd walked in there and that whole fish thing hadn't made it into the book he learned something really interesting that is going to stick with him and inform something else down the way whether that's in his writing or just in his life or whatever and and that belief or that that sense that education is of value in and of itself is a good in and of itself i think is actually kind of a, a way of almost that's an instruction that i take out of that as much as anything is like just keep learning just keep asking questions and being curious and going for its own sake and learning for its own sake, expanding your horizons. And you just have no idea what you learn along the way might work its way back into your work down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I loved all the stories that they told actually their the research stories. And obviously this is a huge component of uh, the, you know, the new podcast that we want to bring out the council, um, which we've teased a little bit already, but you know, just the, the joy of, of the research element of, of world building and, and how it can take you in so many different directions. I mean, that's why we read, you know, science fiction, for example, or uh, is is that it uh, the author has done so much research into that world, um, and you know, we we can read it and enjoy the, the story, but actually, there's so much in there that that is from the real world now, and, and yeah, a, a well-researched book is it's you know those rabbit holes that the, that author's gone down and brought to the reader is, is wonderful. So um, I'm right there with you. I think it's a, it's it's wonderful, but. I guess the most pressing question for us um, in terms of the business side of things is, you know, with such a huge universe that we're trying to, to get down on paper um, and it's spread out over thousands of years, the, the, the timeline, um, is how are we going to manage this world building process so that we actually get around to releasing some of these books at some point? And, and here, Mike, Adam and Pat also had um, some good advice for us. I think, you know, we talk about the rabbit hole a lot and they, they encouraged us to, to follow that rabbit hole, but not to go too deep. They were always very much, or they seemed very much in control of, of when they were going to the rabbit hole. They, they were always bringing it back to the story that they were trying to tell. Um, so they would find inspiration from history and the world around them, but they were always able to apply it back to the story they wanted to tell by asking, you know, how would it work in my story and, and how does it affect my characters? And I think that's you know super important that we don't it's it's great to learn things it's great to be able to 
go down that rabbit hole and 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 as you know someone who, who loves learning new things that's great but we from a business point of view um we need to always be pulling that back to um to what we're doing and uh something that was it patrick or adam who was talking about waiting all the time in publishing and then and then how the the work he's doing Pat, now yeah. yeah isn't going to pay off for another year or two perhaps because of the timelines in there so uh, it's it's easy to get into the sense of like oh yeah I'm doing this and it, it, it's not as urgent but we have to kind of keep that pressure on ourselves. Yeah, I think that the I guess right now it's also finding that balance because I I think this is a tension that we have as well in that we are given a level of freedom since we're trying to do our own thing that the, the we don't have to put the wrong pressure we don't want to put the wrong pressure on ourselves for especially for time constraints and so I think that one of the one of the benefits we should be thinking about as well is the fact that we can set our own timeframes and our schedules. And I, you know, for me, I've, I've managed to at least write one book a year for the last decade. And I've published nine now in the last, well, even less than in nine years. So I, and that was my original goal was to, to publish 10 books in 10 years, just to get them out. So it's possible, like we can really crank them out. I think the, the real, for me, I guess the, the, the temptation, uh, is to actually slow things down because in barreling forward with that at that kind of pace and at the kind of pace that maybe even a traditional publishing schedule would demand it means that we can't take a little bit more time just to create that tapestry and weave a little bit more of the you know not just world building but the 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 level of craft into it that i think we could do if we just took a little bit more time so i think that that's uh that that's one benefit to think in terms of like you know, pros and cons of the the model that we're choosing, um, we do have a little bit more time potentially. And I, and I think that that actually could work out in our favor if we took a little bit more time. Just even looking at a lot of the stuff that I've, you know, that I've enjoyed the most in the last few years, this is a complete sidetrack to the conversation, but this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. A lot of the stuff that I really love was this is the stuff that is taking a ton of time, uh, not to uh, polarize our audience right now, but Rick and Morty's a good example. They're so frustrating in their r- absolutely ridiculous release schedule, but they, they've they split up their fourth season by an, a matter of months right now because they're absolutely just taking as much time as possible to make the best possible stories. And on the flip side, we see that when things got rushed with Game of Thrones, they, they just crammed as much as possible into the last couple of seasons to, to hammer it through and just get it out of the way. So I kind of, I don't know, this is, maybe this is a philosophical discussion to continue later. We've been talking about having a, a podcast episode towards the end of this first season where we just kind of talk amongst ourselves or maybe even diving deeper in, in another season after this. But that's something I've been really thinking about. Like, on, I think you're totally right and they're right. And what we need to take away from it is not to inhibit our creative output and the, the actual production by, uh, falling into these traps of the delights of <laughs> enumerating alien species. Um, but then on the other side, like there's, I think there's actually a lot to be gained as somebody who is a habitual rusher and spent three years of his life rushing every day to produce a video, to get it done, to get on to the next one every day. I guess maybe this is a personal, just a personal point right now as well, but I'm really wanting to slow things down and take my time more in a lot of elements. Yeah, so I, 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 I get that. And I, I think that that maybe at this point in time is, is not a bad thing, but we don't want you to do a Robert Jordan and, you know, um, 
also true. 50 books, you know, uh, 50 books, one a year. That's asking a lot of your, your audience to, <laughs> to wait for the end of the story. So, um, I think also you're right true. though. At the start though, it's, it's definitely worth pausing, but, uh, we just, we, we are going to have to ramp it up at some point. <laughs> so, but, oh, yeah, but for right now, absolutely. yeah, it's, yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, Patrick had some good advice as well, um, in terms of not letting the world building go on longer than it needs to, um, which was yeah. to, to keep that world building commiserate with the size of the world you're building. So, yeah, um, you know, not expanding them for the sake of it and just, you know, realizing, look, yep. Okay. What we've got's enough to tell a story that we need to tell right now. And, and I know that a big part of it for us is, is telling that, that long story arc, but you know, the fact is that, that I think we can build that spine of that story and we could build that up oh you know well enough that we can then start releasing these stories now and and you know avoid those retconning mistakes in the future the other thing that uh, I, I thought came out a lot through the discussion a, a nice tool to use is is not just relying on on written words not just you know writing reams of material uh, it's creating maps it's using non-written um, world building so maps uh, drawing the characters or the creatures uh, creating playlists of songs that that inspire you or, or that, that are tied to it somehow, um, collecting recipes, weird and wonderful recipes, um, designing the clothing, all these sort of things which um, can provide a visual element or a, or a textural element. These different elements, and, and you know, we think of this very much with film production, for example. You know, that we always hear stories of the way that they build up vision boards and these for for uh, for film. Um, and I think we can do the same thing. And in fact, I know you've been working on on things like that already. I know you've you're very visual. You've already done a lot of drawing and sketching um, maps of these worlds and that. And also, I know you've been working on a playlist in the background. So maybe you can tell us a bit about that. What you've been doing there? Well, yeah. I think one of the things that I really liked about um, what Pat said about because he put a lot of detail into the drawings of a ship, and I remember seeing them. And the reason that he did it was because it was the extent of his world, like the whole world that uh, his characters were going to inhabit for the entirety of the story was that ship. And so it, it demanded a certain level of detail because that environment feeds back into the story and naturally lends itself either way. And I think for me, like, yeah, I've been, I've been working on a number of things. I've drawn lots of maps and I've, you know, hand drawn a lot of books and little things for myself and reference materials. But um, the music side is one of those things that's really important for me because my music playlist, I didn't realize just how obscure it was until I started looking up some of the music on YouTube and how few views some of these songs have on YouTube. But it's just uh, certain styles of music and and uh, and collections of songs or albums over the last you know six or seven years that have inspired certain scenes or characters or themes for me that either I have already written into books or that are inspiring stuff that we're, you know, thinking about working on now, uh, all the way from just broader thematic stuff that I just, that captures a, a sense that I know I want to infuse into my work or certain songs that actually act as real blueprints to scenes in my head. And so I've got this massive Spotify playlist where my liked songs playlist, I kind of exclusively use for like, does this inspire and, and encourage a desire to write and that's when I hit the like button. I don't save them otherwise. And um, but there, there's like six or seven hundred songs in there. And so I was going back through and trying to find the specific ones that really are directly tied to something um, and making sure to save those and add some tags and, and write out some notes for myself. And then others that just are really important or impactful for me that maybe are lower priority and don't have a direct tie to any story, but that I know 
are tied to an emotion within me that I want to make sure I pull out at some point. And so I ended up distilling it down to about 120 songs in that spreadsheet, just in case like I ever like Spotify goes, you know, by the wayside and I lose that playlist or just so that I can find them quickly. And there's one song that I didn't find and I don't know why. And that's frustrating because I don't want to go all the way back through and try and find it again. But there's one song that I just haven't been able to find for some reason for a long time. And I need to. What's the song? I don't know. We'll That's it, the we'll problem. The I don't know. Um, <laughs> I know the scene that it's tied to, and I know exactly the the mm. sense and the emotion and the pacing, and whatever else. But for whatever reason, I just I couldn't find it. So I need to find that song again. And maybe that I just didn't recognize the intro or something and kind of skipped it, or I don't know. But it mm. and go ahead. So for you, for you, the songs are really about more the process of writing and getting you to a mood. It's not uh, the songs themselves. Are there any that that, for example? Um, would find their way into the, or can, you know, leak into the actual yeah. world itself. Not a lot of them, but a few of them. Yeah. There's one that's from into the Nanton that really directly inspired a scene, uh, like a really creepy, um, occultic scene, this big kind of parade. Um, and that one, even some of the, the lyrics from the song found their way into the story. And then there's another one, um, that is, you know, what could really find its way into the story that it it tied into and inspired and i think i shared it with you before but it's kind of like the uh this the the a matriarchal take on dueling in a society that uh values honor but it's the women that carry out the violence and the men that sit by and watch and stress out as their women kill each other um and so there's a song for that. And it's actually, it's really fun because it's like a, uh, and this is why I would love to actually just sit down and talk about some of the stuff at some point more at length with you. But there's, um, it just has this, this sense of like from an outside observer, it's like, oh, this is a cool cultural thing. Like everybody's excited. They're all dancing together. There's this thing and you don't see the lethal intent um, until it's all over. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, oh man. Yeah. So there are things like that where there's a song that for whatever reason, captures my like the visual cortex in my brain and carries it somewhere and i see and play out these scenes that grow into some stories as i ask questions and probe deeper and just kind of follow the music and inhabit it and so there are a few of those songs that definitely you know if if we got the rights would in one way or another find their way into you know into the universe but but yeah, and then there, yeah, there are actually a few. I'm going to stop now because I could list off even more. Now that you've asked that question, I'm I'm thinking more and more. But that's fine. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, yeah, the other point is, you know, the intention is to is to do oh, films yeah. based on this as well. So having these these songs as as reference points down the track is very important. And actually, keeping track uh, is probably the last point that I, I wanted to bring up here, uh, and, and probably you know our main action point out of this. Uh, out of this episode it's it's how to keep track of all the world building now i know you've got a lot of notebooks you've been um you know you've jotted all these things down you've you've written your uh you know your book of magic and how the, the magic works um but and you know we've been talking a lot about how how we can now really you know canonize all this and, and get it down um so that it so that we can refer back to it easily and, and make use of it down the track uh so you know we mentioned spreadsheets in the in the in the discussion, and that's something that that you know we're definitely working with already. Um, working on into the Nanton, uh, I've already created a spreadsheet where, as we go through chapter by chapter, I'm I'm pulling out those those world building elements of the characters, the the you know the location, uh, all that sort of meta narrative so that's in there. We, we, you know, we're starting to log that as we go through. Yeah, just yeah. I was when we when I was getting back into it, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much to work on just right away. <laughs> yeah. 
and so obviously we'll be doing spreadsheets, but they, they can become unwieldy as well. And um, one of the things, and, and this is really a, a bit of a, a tease for next episode, but there are other uh, technologies out there um, that are, that can provide other solutions for us. So one of those is something that you've used a bit before. It's called Archi- um, Archivos, 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 Archivos. Yeah, which which uh, I haven't yet played with. You've shown it to me, but I haven't yet played with. So I guess one of our action points here is to uh, is to dive into that and start to set that up, or, or you know, get back into that and start that going, so that we can really start to churn through um, the world building and, and really get uh, get it set up so we can track it and and make this an efficient process. Um, and, and as I said, that's a bit of a tease for next episode, so I don't want to get into the details of that one too much. Um, and maybe you can you can uh, talk a bit about that. Uh, let everyone know. I was just going to say, well, you're in luck because you'll get you'll get to meet the f- the founder next week, and then you'll definitely be able to pronounce it properly two weeks, afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in two weeks, right? I always say next week, but I always mean in two weeks. Yeah, no, and that's I think for me that I recognized about myself that I what I need is a structure to fill, and I know I'll fill it quickly. That's why I'm not so worried about like the one book a year thing is what I've done in the midst of holding down, you know, four jobs and vlogging daily and living in West Africa and traveling the world and whatever else. So like, I'm not worried about like when I get to a place where I can just sit down and focus on it, I'm not worried about being able to crank out a lot of books really quickly personally, which may hopefully doesn't come back to haunt me that I just said that in a recording. But, um, but right now what I, what I, why I want to focus on the structure so much is because I know that it will accelerate that process and make it better if we stop now and gather all this information and think through a lot of the potential problems, pitfalls and corners into which we could paint ourselves, because if we can get that done in advance, then it'll only grow. It's always going to grow. It's always going to get bigger. It's always going to get, cause there's always going to be so many more fun and cool things to follow. But if we can at least get that structure in place, I know I'll be able to fill it richly with all of that. Like the rest of it's going to come. So then there's almost just there's just a level of trusting whatever it is in my brain that does what it does to do what it does. And um, so I'm just trying to build the playground on which it can have the best time of its life. Today's podcast is made possible by our magnanimous patrons whose contributions directly impact our work here, as well as the future of the project, which is only getting bigger by the day. It's always been the same size, but you're starting to understand just how big it is. They are the best. Our super patrons as of this recording being Kevin, Karen Bates, Mystery Man, Susan French, Dixie Rose, David Guy, Figures 7-3, Steve, Jane Baker, Timeless Founder Capital, and Mr. and Mrs. DJ Poser. Thank you all so very much. Building the Oracle is mixed and produced by Zach Egan, co-hosted by Richard Bilkey, mascotted proudly by his four-legged friend Gustav, and is written and hosted by yours truly. Our theme music is Glory, and our ad music is Light, both by David Cutter, who you can also find and support directly on Patreon. And our newsletter is Assembled with Love by our own Kate Weber. Don't forget you can support us at patreon.com slash dreadgods whenever that itch grows too strong to resist. Don't forget to rate and review Building the Oracle on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to your podcast, or Gustav will bite tiny little holes in your face masks. Oh, no, that, he doesn't bite tiny holes. He rips them apart. Believe me, there's no, <laughs> there's no finesse. There's no if, then, or there, or buts about it. My name is Jay Swanson, and thank you again for listening. Tune back in in two weeks. Our next guest, Dave Robison, the founder of Archivos. Until then, keep making rad shit. <laughs>